I'm Sean. And I'm Eric. And we're the Vertiguys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three. Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. Let's talk about Preacher. Preacher is a creator-owned... No. No, no too I late. Don't, don't think it's that. Oh, I, it's, it's, it's a Vertigo it comic? Is, it is now. <laughs> it's it's creator-owned now. It's, it's done. We just locked it in. Well, yeah, it's uh, created by Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, and it tells the story of a humble Texan man, minus the humble part. Today, I think, to be more specific, we should probably talk about Preacher issues 31 through 33, sort of the back half of the New Orleans story arc. Yeah, sort of the backside of New Orleans. The ba- <laughs> but first, let's talk about what happened The in dirty the- side. <laughs> Let's talk about what happened in the front end of New Orleans. Uh, Let's talk about what New Orleans had going on up front. So we've had two issues of this story arc so far, and the first one didn't actually take place in New Orleans that much. Yeah, well, Jesse, Tulip, and Cassidy have hit the road. They were going to go to Arizona because an angel told Jesse to speak with the Navajo, but then he decided it would be more fun. He decided it would be more fun to go to New Orleans and speak with a man about voodoo. Yeah, that's right. And they also ran into an old friend. Arthur! Yeah, Arseface, who is the son of a jerk-ass sheriff from Jesse's hometown who had shot himself, and uh, Arseface blames Jesse and... Stephen Root. ...came to kill him. Stephen Root? Hugo Root. (laughs) But Jesse talked Arseface down, and later he and Cassidy took Arseface out on the town. Meanwhile, at the hotel, Tulip was abducted, I put abducted in air quotes so you can't see them. She uh, held a man at gunpoint and forced him to abduct her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, several people tried to abduct Tulip. She prevailed in that encounter, but because they mentioned that it was Cassidy-related, she decided to follow them anyway to find out what was going on with Cassidy. Yeah. And what is going on with Cassidy is that these guys work for Les Enfants du Sang, a vampire-worshipping gang. We met them in Blood and Whiskey. Yeah, they basically want Cassidy back so they can become vampires, probably. Yeah. Eternal life. Yep. He didn't choose wisely. Jesse's also made arrangements to meet with this fellow Xavier, a voodoo expert, to have the memories of Genesis that he has in his head but can't access read out to him, essentially. Genesis is planet forbidden. That's right. And you can't get a permit to do a damned illegal thing. Right. (laughs) So, Preacher number 31 has a cover by Glenn Fabry. Which shows the Enfants du Sang. Got about um, six Enfants du Sang on the cover here. This one in the center is holding a blade. Yeah, that's going to be our Jonathan equivalent. Yeah. Even though this man is tan and has a joyful expression on his face. Two things that Jonathan is not. I want to point out that one of these Enfants du Sang is an obese woman with the eye curl and ankh symbol of Sandman's death. Oh, yeah, that's a good point there. Interesting little so, reference. Do you think that this redhead over here is supposed to be Lily? No, I don't think that redhead is there for any good reason. She seems to have literally two left feet. Mm, I don't think so. I think she's just stepping forward. Well, okay. Her right foot sure looks like a left foot to me, but okay. Underworld. We pick up the action here at Enfance du Sang HQ, where Lily, their leader, is talking with Jonathan. In this conversation, we learn that Lily is a high-priced hooker, and her father would be personally and professionally wrecked if he ever found out. And that's why she does it. 
Right. She has this fantasy about about him finding out that she's a prostitute after having sex with her. And fucking gross. Yeah, it's it's terrible. And she adds, As a matter of fact, he was always a wonderful father. Indulged me totally. Delighted in my every happiness. Lived to see me smile. So here we learn that Lily is completely awful and for no reason. Yeah, she's just a psycho. She just has no motivation. And they're interrupted by the news that Millie's back. Now this is weird because the group that they sent to get Tulip was led by a guy named Duke. They don't mention Duke at all. That's not Duke's back or, hey, where's Duke? Well, Duke's not back because Duke's fucking dead. Uh, yeah, Tulip shot him. Anyway, Tulip arrives. She looks good enough to eat, Jonathan says, masturbating all over himself. We can't see that. We yeah, just have to... it's pretty strongly <laughs> implied. <laughs> we just have to assume. Tulip replies, many have tried, goat fucker. Many have tried. <laughs> She's the best. So, we now cut to downtown New Orleans. The French Quarter, we might presume. We might be wrong. You've been to New Orleans. I never have. This looks like the French Quarter to me. But Assface is saying that he feels great, having just lost his virginity. Now, walking the streets, Jesse Cassidy and Arseface pass a band playing on a balcony. And the band calls out for the ugly boy to jam with us. Yeah, you! Come on, man! It'll be cool! Just because they're standing on the balcony playing, it reminded me of the girl in Blood and Whiskey, who was also standing on a balcony and had a crowd gathered round. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Chanting for her to, you know, expose herself. Expose her bosoms, yeah. Indecently. Yes. And also, there was some ice cream involved. Yes. Well, in Cassidy's head, there was. Yeah, well, and shortly in Cassidy's belly. <laughs> right. Because he can't resist his impulses. Okay, Jesse and Cassidy lift Arseface up onto the balcony as they answer the singer's question. What's your name, man? Tell us your name. He's, He's called, called Arseface. Arseface. They get Arseface up there. He starts singing. I have no idea what he's supposed to be singing here. I couldn't fucking figure it out either. He says, do you like Owaza? Uh, I don't know what he's trying to say with Owaza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. And then we do get quite a bit of the song here, but I couldn't tell what it was. Yeah, and Cassidy says a star is born, which is exactly the snarky comment that I wrote in my notes before reading that that was the snarky comment that Cassidy says. So you and Garth Ennis were on the same page here. Yeah. Uh, and as Cassidy and Jesse are watching this, a stern-looking guy in a cowboy hat behind Cassidy has way too interesting a character design not to be important later. Yeah. Back at Enfance du Sang headquarters in a basement in New Orleans... Side note, I'm given to understand that New Orleans doesn't actually have basements. Because mm, it's on the water. Right. They don't, they don't have burials there. They have mausoleums. Right. Interesting. Maybe it's just an abandoned church that's above ground. Yeah, I guess we've been assuming it's a basement because it doesn't have any windows. And it seems like you have to go upstairs to get to it. You have to go no, upstairs they to get go out of it. go down some stairs to go in and out. Yeah, yeah you yeah. have to go up some stairs to get out of it, I mean to say. Anyhow, nonetheless, they are in the basement. And Tulip is asking, So what do you assholes want with Cassidy? And Millie is trying to say, Uh, Jonathan, she killed everybody. That's what he's getting at. Killed everybody. Yeah, that's what she's trying to say. Quiet, Millie. We want his power. Personally, I want to rip his motherfucking head off. Shut up, Mako. We want him to drink from us and bless us with immortality that Les Enfants du Sang will last forever. Now, why does Mako hate Cassidy so much? Right, well, when they met back in Blood and Whiskey... 
Cassidy knocked Mako all the way across the room. Yeah, and put him in a neck brace, as I remember. Or was it he had to eat through a straw? Maybe both. Yeah, I think it was both. Yeah, he fucked him up pretty good. Jonathan starts to go on about the vampire life, how cool it would be. Lily asks if Tulip is Cassidy's sow. Yeah, I wrote down, Tulip's not going to like that. And then on the next page, my note was, no, she didn't. (laughs) Tulip immediately opens fire, and that scares even Lily. It seems like she's shooting to miss at this point. She's pretty good. I don't think she'd be missing this, these guys if she yeah, she didn't mean to. She fires warning shots across Lily, Mako, and Jonathan. Yeah, and there's a, a, the shot here is from Tulip's perspective, so we can see the shooting gallery that she's got lined up. Yeah, and she's using her Desert Eagle .50. Now, she does wing Millie here. I tried to warn you! I tried to fucking... Wah! She has to reload, and Lily orders them to get her while she reloads. Too slow. The first two guys to reach her get their heads blown off. Yeah, once they try to put hands on her, she's not firing warning shots anymore. And we get a really gruesome panel of her just blasting a hole in a guy's face and out the back of his head. Jonathan throws a knife. He misses. He aims to throw again, but Tulip blows his hand off. Ah, I love her face. She's just, like, fucking determined and not taking any shit. (laughs) This just, like, what is your bullshit face? Yeah, and in in addition to blowing his hand into pieces, she also blows the knife in half. That's a good shot. Yeah, it's pretty fucking cool. Lily, upon seeing his bloodied hand, immediately starts sucking the blood out of his fingers. There's a time and a place, Lily, says an oddly sedate Jonathan. Not really feeling any pain there. Tulip asks, got the message? Absolutely nobody fucks with me, dog shit. That's the golden rule. I forgot about the golden rule. Yeah, and she tells them not to fuck with Cassidy, especially not to fuck with her, and that if Lily opens her mouth again, Tulip will shoot her. She leaves, and Jonathan orders Mako to follow her. Now, when she says opens her mouth again, do you think she's implying she doesn't want Lily to talk, or that she doesn't want Lily to suck any more blood? (laughs) But she she actually says, open your mouth to me again. So, you know, fronting at Tulip. Look at you actually reading the words in the comic book. (laughs) We might want to mention at this point that a few issues ago, Cassidy had uh, drunkenly confessed his love to Tulip. And I'm sure we'll come to that. Yeah, she wasn't happy about that at all. Well, and that's sort of what gives her the beginning of the idea that Cassidy is duplicitous, which is... Part of what she's investigating by coming to confront the Enfants du Sang tonight. Yeah. So it's all related. While Arseface continues to sing, the guy in the cowboy hat asks Jesse and Cassidy if they're Arseface's legal guardians, and is pleased to learn that they're not. Excuse me, Reverend, but are you gentlemen with that young fella over there? Hmm? The boy doing the singing, are you his legal guardians? Uh Uh-uh, he's his own man. Thank you. And now this is a cool part. We go into the beginning of a a several-page rant from Jesse, who I get the impression is sort of speaking for Garth Ennis, Mm -hmm. about the late, great Bill Hicks. Right, so first off, Cassidy is still wrestling with their quest to find God. I don't understand why I really, truly think it's worth it hunting down God on humanity's behalf. I mean, what's so fucking special about us anyway? What are we but a herd of selfish Egypts fucking up the planet? Uh, A fucking virus with shoes. Bill Hicks. Right, yeah, now they start to bond over being fans. Jesse saw Bill Hicks live once, met him even. We get a flashback to Jesse's preacher days. 
Five years back, I'm in Dallas or Austin. I don't recall which, and I wander into some club or other for a drink. Didn't even know what kind of place it was till I got inside. Just happened to be the nearest to where I crashed the truck. See, this was back in the Anvil days, when I was mostly so drunk I couldn't see through a ladder with two tries. That's a pretty good line. <laughs> now, playing in this club is comedian Bill Hicks. Yeah, and Steve Dillon has got the look of him just perfect. Yeah, somewhat unusually for a celebrity appearance in Preacher, we see Hicks' face quite clearly several times. Yeah. Jesse liked Hicks because he told the truth as he saw it, no compromise. Jesse says he didn't always agree, but he liked Hicks' honesty and fearlessness. Oh, I do want to point out that, you know, drunken preacher Jesse hears Bill Hicks speak for just a second and orders himself a black coffee. Before that night, I never even heard of the guy. Only took about ten minutes for me to see I was never going to forget him. Holy shit, you're a preacher, Hicks said as he sat down at the bar next to Jesse. I guess that makes two of us. And a couple months after that, he was dead. Pancreatic cancer. He knew, too. Guy kept going, kept performing with the license granted a dying man to say what he likes without fear. Now, I don't agree with everything he said or believed, but by God, I could see that guy stood up and told the truth as he saw it. No compromise, no retreat. Now, it took a few months for Jesse to hear that Bill Hicks had died, but when he did, that's what inspired him to walk into a bar in Anvil intending to tell some truths of his own. Right, which is the huge rant that he gave to the townsfolk that ended with a pool cue being broken over his head and led to the entire congregation being present, or the entire town being present in the congregation when Genesis struck the next day. Right, so this is way back to foundational events of the series. Folks don't like the truth. That's the point. It's easier lying. But I hate a lie, Cass, my own most of all. They keep us crawling in the dust when we could and should be climbing for the stars. And a guy who will tell the truth in this bullshit world, he's worth his weight in gold. And as he says that, Cassidy looks troubled. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that reminds me of a Bill Hicks line. The crawling in the dust when we should be climbing for the stars. Mm -hmm. At the end of Dangerous, he says, what if we took all the all the money that we're spending on defense and nuclear weapons and shit to destroy the planet and used it to feed every last man, woman, and child on this planet without exception and then took the leftovers and went off and explored the universe. <laughs> that is a good line. Yeah. Sometime later, Jesse is walking down the street alone when Tulip calls out to him from an alleyway. Psst! Yeah, she tells him that the hotel room is full of people she had to shoot and how she and he need to have words with Cassidy right away. But, but are you okay? Yeah, fine. I checked out the bad guy's place and shot them up a little bit. You know, there were quite a lot of them, and one that guy nearly got me with a throwing knife. But I know you'll be cool with that, because you know you can trust me to handle myself. Let's go. And Jesse's face is priceless. <laughs> this is his, his not-cool-with-that face. <laughs> he just looks fucking terrified. I don't know, for her or of her? <laughs> yeah, I guess the latter is an appropriate reaction. <laughs> Back at Les Enfants HQ, Lily and Jonathan regroup. Turns out everybody else who was still alive went home terrified. Lily asks, are you sure you're okay? You ought to be in shock, at least. And Jonathan replies, I'm not a very shockable person, Lily. What does concern me is the general level of squeamishness among Les Enfants. You never saw Nosferatu having to go home because I just about shit my pants. At this point, they start talking about a guy named Roger. We met Roger back in Blood and Whiskey, and he was a god-awful poet. Yeah, and a parody of Neil Gaiman. We thought so, at least. Uh, we learned that Roger is now a successful writer. He's off reinventing genres or something. 
And at this point, she receives a call from Mako saying that he has eyes on Cassidy. As Mako spies, we catch the tail end of Jesse and Tulip's conversation with Cassidy. I swear to you, as I thought they'd all have wised up and grown out of it. Les enfants do wanky fucking sang Jesus. The last thing I expected was for them to still be on the go. So, what, you just forget to mention that these people are after you, even though you know we're going to New Orleans? Tulip could have been hurt, you know. That is, if she wasn't 100% self-reliant and able to handle anyone dumb enough to mess with her, I mean. Fact remains, Cass, you fucked up. I know, Jesus, I'm sorry, but I never even thought, you know. Jesse, honestly, you should see the fucking state of these agents. There's two dozen of them, and I'll bet you a million dollars right now you could flatten a lot of them single-handed without even using your word once. We'll probably never hear from them again. And I really am sorry, alright? Lovely piece of juxtaposition as he says that last line uh, imposed over the watching face of Mako. Yeah, who is grinning like an idiot. I also think it's interesting in light of stuff that happens later in the comic that Cassidy effectively dares Jesse to take them on barehanded here. Oh, yeah. Interesting. So you think maybe that was on purpose. Now we cut to another scene. It is Janice. That's Xavier's girlfriend, in case you didn't know. And she is talking to D. That is Cassidy's one-eyed ex-girlfriend. In case you didn't right, know. we don't have the full story on one eye, except we know it's what Cassidy did to her. Yeah, we know it's Cassidy's fault. Dee has been attempting to use voodoo to punish Cassidy for his crimes. She has a photograph of him, which she's been shooting an empty gun at for months. She actually summons Janice here to learn more voodoo, but Janice won't ask her boyfriend Xavier because he takes this stuff seriously and wouldn't be happy that they're messing with it. Yeah, apparently Dee had no idea that the voodoo she was doing was from Janice rather than Xavier. Well, great. Isn't he the one we should ask? Um, not really. You see, I sort of didn't tell him I was giving you the spell out of his book. What? They look over at the crew. Right, this turns out to be the same bar where Jesse is meeting Xavier. And Dee disappears. Jesse is suddenly not so sure about the aspect of the ritual where the snake is upon him, physically. He says he's not afraid. I just don't want to be the world's bravest snake bite victim is all. It isn't actually that kind of snake, Xavier clarifies. Now, Tulip orders one Dixie, two Diet Cokes, one JD and Ice, and a Krakatoa Hurl with extra cherries. The Krakatoa Hurl thing didn't really interest me. Okay. Uh, but what's a Dixie? I don't know. We can check that one out. The JD and Ice, that's Cassidy's standard order. The Krakatoa Hurl is probably Tulip, as she has a fondness for flamboyant fruity drinks. Yeah. Cassidy chimes in, and a heroin on the rocks for me. Is that meant to be a joke, or is that actually the name of a cocktail? I assumed it was a joke. Yeah, Especially since the JD and Ice is probably his drink. Just another reminder that maybe Cassidy has been into heroin. Yeah, and also it seems like a joke based on Tulip's response. You're being very Cassidy, Cassidy. Cassidy helps her carry the drinks back, using this opportunity to try and ask Tulip out again. Listen, I know you're angry, but you don't understand what it's like, Tulip. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried, and I cannot stop thinking about you. And I don't think you can stop thinking about me either. What the fuck? You're stupid. <laughs> that's not what she says, but, well, it's pretty much what she says. <laughs> and here's where he is a real dick. She asks what makes him think that she's interested in him, and he replies, because she didn't tell Jesse that he came onto her in the first place. I didn't say anything to Jesse because I didn't want him finding out his best friend was an asshole trying to stick one in his back. 
But you know what? That's exactly why I should have told him. You stay the fuck away from me in the future, Cassidy. Bollocks. And Cassidy looks dark and grabs a beer. Now, we've already had Cassidy quit drinking, right? Uh, yeah, supposedly, but not for real. Yeah. So, midnight in a cemetery. Yeah, this doing a voodoo ritual in a southern cemetery in the middle of the night will remind some listeners, if they're anything like me, of John Barent's nonfiction novel Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, in which the title scene revolves around the same kind of scenario. Oh, cool. This seems a little bit cliche to Tulip, but Xavier says, Atmosphere is essential, Tulip. You are absolutely right when you mentioned cool props. <laughs> yeah, and he says he's got another one up ahead. And as they head into the cemetery, Mako calls in Les Enfants. I have to go and change. In the meantime, Luther, this is Jesse. Jesse, this is Luther. He opens up a well, and inside we see... That's a big fucking snake. Yeah, do you know what kind he is? Oh, he's a python of some kind. He's a constrictor. Okay. Which brings us to Preacher number 32, Snakes in the Grass. Yeah, this is a double meaning, referring both to the literal snake that's going to be crawling on Jesse for most of this issue, and to Les Enfants, who are just, you know, low-down, mean sons of bitches. On the cover, we have Jesse, eyes gone white, his back up against a cross covered in skulls, and he is draped in a huge snake. This snake is very different from Luther. It's long, not wide, it's green, not brown and white, and it has a viper's mouth. Well, shit, maybe Glenn Fabry doesn't really know how to draw snakes that good. No, that's understandable. Or, I mean, he draws them good, he just doesn't maybe distinguish the different, uh, the different species. Anyway, there's a whole lot of snake on that cover. And there's a whole lot of snake in this issue. That's not innuendo, it's literal snake. Yeah, I think that's one of the best covers of the series. And... I think that the publishers must have agreed, because I believe that this was used as the cover for one of the trades. Maybe not in this particular printing, but... Oh, it's the back cover. It is the of, back cover of this trade. Of this trade. I think it's the front cover of a past, a past edition. It's certainly an evocative image. For those of you that don't know, I believe Preacher used to be available in nine trade paperbacks. It has recently been made available in six trade paperbacks that are only like $20 each. Mm -hmm. So it's super affordable. You guys should just go get it. <laughs> yeah. And this is sort of a convenient read order as well, since the flashbacks and specials have not been separated out in the new version. Right. Yeah, it works out well. So Jesse sits down on a grave and gets acquainted with Luther. Jesse is kind of surprised by how low-key the whole ritual is. Guess I expected more on a couple tape players and a big snake is all. One of the tape players Xavier mentions is to record the things Jesse says while he's in the trance. So what makes you think there's more to voodoo than just this? James Bond movie I once saw. I might have seen the same one. Jesse goes on to describe in the movie. Anyway, this voodoo guy, he had this whole outfit, bones, top hat, skeleton painted on his chest, little snakes everywhere. Guess I was expecting you to do some of that shit, you know? Really? And then he starts beating drums. Maybe... I will, Jesse. And as we turn the page, we find Xavier converted into Baron Somebody as he appears in the film Live and Let Die. 
uh, top hat, face painted like a skull, covered in little snakes. And Jesse goes into the trance. That's our title page, Snakes in the Grass. Now, just a reminder, the idea behind Xavier's ritual is that he is summoning the serpent god Arpe Repasoir, who is going to possess Jesse. He will then have access to all the knowledge in Jesse's head, Jesse's and Genesis's, and he will answer questions, and they will record the answers. Yeah, also, the title page reminds us that we have colorist Pamela Rambo for this issue, which mm-hmm. I don't think we've mentioned that yet this episode. Instead of normal series colorist Matt Hollingsworth. Yeah, we had previously mentioned that earlier in the story arc we had both Rambo and James Sinclair, and James Sinclair did the Blood and Whiskey special, our first trip to New Orleans. Yeah, and both Sinclair and Rambo tend to be just slightly more muted Mm -hmm. than Hollingsworth usually is, which plays well to the kind of the gothic feel of the New Orleans-based stories. Yeah. I also thought it was cute, and it's kind of playing with expectations by having the characters discuss how Hollywood they're going to go with the voodoo. He kind of justifies his own decision not to go completely low-key by having the characters chat about how interesting, how exciting the voodoo should be in this this scene. (laughs) Right. Meanwhile, Tulip is having a very interesting conversation with Janice, in which Dee's name comes up. Janice is a believer in pretty much everything, which Tulip finds laughable. It's Xavier's spirituality that she's attracted to. She says he uses his gift to help people, which I thought was pretty funny. A guy named Xavier who likes to use his gift to help people. (laughs) Ridiculous. They'll never make a comic book of that. And being a fan of Xavier's spiritual powers and a believer in pretty much everything, Janice starts talking about Dee and the curses that they're putting on Dee's ex-boyfriend, who at this scene she does not name. Tulip says, and this is helping people? It helps D. Now, we get two random panels here. Cassidy is away from the others and being surly and just drinking vodka out of a flask. He tosses one empty one into the river and produces another from inside his coat. Janice mentions again how she finds Cassidy familiar. But I can't have seen him before because I wasn't in town when he was last here. We learn that Cassidy and Xavier used to be good friends, but then Cassidy did something. Xavier won't really talk about it, but like when Cassidy called him up about helping you guys out, I thought maybe he wasn't going to. But he looked kind of sad and he smiled a little bit and he said, For old time's sake. But Cassidy, yeah, I wish I could remember where I've seen him. Xavier talks to Arpe Repasoir in Jesse's body. By the way, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but there you go. Well, you took French, not me. (laughs) Where is he? Xavier asks. In a place he feels at ease. And the spirit inside Jesse narrates, Voodoo Features presents a mind's eye production of a Jesse Custer film. God Almighty, the Saint of Killers, those damn angels, and the Duke in Genesis. Howdy, Pilgrim. Sort of took the long way around the barn, didn't you? And this is one of my favorite panels in the series. We see Jesse happily holding popcorn and soda sitting in a movie theater seat. Yeah, showing a movie entitled Genesis in which the Duke addresses him directly. Meanwhile, the Enfants du Sang arrive, and Mako, who's been there all along, gives a report. They're still there, asks Jonathan. Every one, the crazy bitch with the gun, some colored boy and his girl, that minister fella, and that cocksucker Cassidy himself. 
Jonathan looks bored. Any idea what they're doing? Nope, heard some drumming a while back, but I don't know why. Okay. Lily? Hmm? Ready? When you are. Lily steps out in some kind of dark-haired streetwalker disguise? Well, she's looking very, very sexy and very gothy at the same time. Yeah, that's fair. Mako comments, God, I want to fuck her. She'd break you, little boy. Says Jonathan while masturbating to completion all over his own stomach. <laughs> you level this accusation at Jonathan. Pretty much every time his hands are out of panel. Everything he says is so wanky. So masturbatory. Yeah. Well, they are a bunch if of If you had sex with the girl that I have sex with, you'd die from it. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I hate Mako, too. But yeah. I mean, fuck that guy. <laughs> well, this is like two different schools of having no cool, right? Because Mako is, is all temper and action, and Jonathan just thinks he's the boss. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, so they got, like, Lily, Jonathan, and Mako here, as well as about four mooks. And the mooks are nervous. She shot Millie up the ass! Yes, I know she shot Millie up the ass. Lily, would you show them why that's not going to happen again? Lily opens the trunk of the car to reveal guns. Lots of guns. Specifically, they're all Uzis. Fucking cool, says some guy. Don't play with them. Anyone discharging around and blowing our cover is going to get the next one in his face. So they brief on the plan here. The cannon fodder are going to go in first to get shot by Tulip, but hopefully they will whittle down the opposition a bit in the process. Jonathan, meanwhile, has a secret plan to fight inflation. <laughs> Capture Cassidy. <laughs> so wait, not only did you invent a secret plan for me to fight inflation, now you don't agree with it. <laughs> we'll probably put in the show notes what the hell we're talking I about. I love that part. Jonathan has pulled something mysterious out of the trunk of the car, and we will come back to that later. Yeah, we also touched a little bit on Mako's grudge against Cassidy here. What is it with you and him anyway, Mako? A little matter of someone once having got the shit kicked out of him, Lily says. I wasn't ready. In the movie theater in Jesse's mind, the Duke warns Jesse not to waste time and asks what he wants to hear. Now, remembering the deal that he struck with the Saint of Killers who spared his life back in Masada in exchange for information on his origins, essentially, how he was made. You tell me what I got to know, preacher. This thing between us is settled. That right there is the most I ever offered a living soul. So Jesse answers the Duke's question. Let's have the lowdown on the saint. And then in a two-page spread, Jesse reads all of the Saint of Killers miniseries. Yeah, this recaps quite concisely what happened in that miniseries. This super condensed recap using very similar imagery and a lot of the exact same narration. Now, we were talking about how the devil had two different designs in that miniseries, depending whether Steve Pugh or Carlos Ezquera was drawing it. Right. Well, Steve Dillon's drawing the devil in this two-page spread, and so we get a third devil design. His horns still stick straight out like a steer's. Oh, so you're saying it's close enough. It's, it's pretty different. He's not bulky like he was in either of those designs, really. Right. 
But okay, super short recap of the Saint of Killers miniseries, which we covered several episodes ago. There was this Texan who knew nothing but killing, but then he rescued a woman from some Native Americans, and then they got married, and she told him there was something to him other than killing, and they had a daughter. He was a nice guy for about ten years. And then she and the daughter got sick. He went to get medicine for them, and he was interrupted on the way back by some bandits who had traveled his way trying to get out of a blizzard. They shot his horse, so he wasn't able to get back in time to save his wife and daughter. He tried to kill those guys and got killed and went to hell, and his heart was so cold it froze hell. So the devil and the angel of death, who was tired of being the angel of death, gave him the new job of being the angel of death. He went back to Earth, and he killed all those guys. Yeah, but no one could have known, not even in the wildest madman's dreams, of the awful thing that he would one day do. This part is rad. The narration continues asking whether there was some agency behind all this tragedy. Who would and who could do such a thing as arrange for the birth of the saint? Who would cause the deaths of so many? Who would give a man the means to damn himself when for ten long years he'd tried so hard to change? Who would throw the devil's life away as if it were an afterthought? The saint had killed the devil in the miniseries? Yes. Who would seek to replace a tired and soul-sick angel of death grown weary of his burden? Who would want a saint of killers? Twenty miles to the east, a band of scum appeared from out the gathering blizzard, hopelessly lost. A dozen worthless sons of bitches, and whoever sent the storm that turned them from their course, surely the hand that caused such woeful misdirection was not God's. But it was. Furious, Jesse demands, Son of a bitch! Son of a bitch! Where is he? Where the fuck is God? Where's Janus, anyway? Cassidy finds Tulip alone, which, she points out, doesn't give him license to act like a jerk. Tulip, I'm not gonna just go away, you know. I'm not giving up when I know you're lying to yourself like this. What a creep! (laughs) He's being a prick, yeah. She asks why he's being a dick, hitting on her behind Jesse's back when she's not interested, and reiterates, No, really, I'm not interested. I'm in love with Jesse Custer. I have been since the moment we met. I am totally and completely devoted to him with all my heart. I will never, ever stop loving him. Now, up until recently, I thought you were okay. I didn't trust you at the beginning, but I was getting used to you. But I have no idea where you got the impression I was attracted to you. Unless it was from a bottle. Oh, here we fucking go. Typical yank attitude. If you've more than two pints at a sitting, everybody says you have a fucking drinks problem. Cassidy, don't insult my intelligence, okay? That bullshit homespun philosophy of yours that you think makes you such a rogue, that's just your little security blanket for when you don't want to face the truth. Which is, in this instance, that you drink too much and it makes you act like an asshole. Now that you're betraying the man who saved your life. So what am I meant to do? Would you tell me? Quit? Yes, I think that would be an excellent idea. Because if you keep this shit up, you'll leave me no choice but to tell Jesse. And then you're through. Aye, what's he gonna do? I'd fucking hammer him, Tulip, and you know it. Would you listen to yourself for a minute? You're talking about hurting your friend. You can't have me, so you're gonna take it out on him. Is it the drinking, Cassidy? Or is this what you're really like? She walks away and leaves a dejected Cassidy to take a good hard look at himself. Oh, Jesus. I also like this little bit here as she's talking about how she loves Jesse. He's obstinate and set in his ways and a little bit crazy, but with me he's kind and gentle and he treats me with respect. I know that once he gives me his word, I don't ever have to worry about doubting him. Man, that sounds like a bit that the TV writers should read. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, back inside the vision... Duke shows Jesse a conversation that Genesis caught between DeBlanc and Fiore, the two angels who are sort of running the place since God has left heaven. They're talking about how Genesis needs to bond with a mortal because it lacks a will of its own. Without a dominant will to exert some measure of restraint, it could do anything. You couldn't stop it, run from it, or hide from it, not even if you were God Almighty. 
So I guess you know what you gotta do, huh? Yeah. But I, I don't know whose voice that is. Yeah! <laughs> That's the second thug from 48 Hours. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I don't know why. <laughs> Jesse Custer, a character from this comic book, he says, speaks in more of a says, Texan voice. Yeah, I have to let Genesis take control. <laughs> so Cassidy catches up with Tulip, who is now with Janice, and Janice, getting a look at him, all of a sudden recognizes him, causing her to spill coffee all over him. D. Oh, Jesus, Savior. Savior. D? Jesus fucking Christ. Now, Janice is basically so freaked out at suddenly recognizing that Cassidy is the guy from the photo that D has been shooting at that she rushes off to tell Xavier immediately, spilling coffee on Cassidy in the process. Cassidy goes after her. Stay away from me. No, Xavier. She's coming right for us, says Mako. Let her go past. This is ideal. And Jonathan jumps out of the bush between Cassidy and Janice. Lick your father's shit from my cockhead, you miserable Irish queer, says Jonathan, visibly aroused at the thought of it. (laughs) I want to point out that we never see Jonathan's dick in this whole arc. (laughs) Cassidy, hearing this, stumbles for a moment. You're, you're, you're fucking dead. Cassidy seems delighted at the chance to kill somebody tonight, and maybe a little bit to make up for not warning Jesse and Tulip about the Enfants in the first place. But he moves a little too slow. Jonathan pulls out a sword and cuts his head off. End of issue. Upside down in the grass, Cassidy's head calls out to Tulip, Help! I guess that's the end of the issue. On the cover of Preacher number 33, Price of Night, we have Tulip looking badass, if not looking much like Tulip. Charging ahead amidst the tombstones with her desert eagle in hand. This time they got the gun right. Or at least better. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And by they, we mean Glenn Fabry, who drew this cover. Yeah. Or painted it, to be more precise. Well, well, says Jonathan. If it isn't the woman that nobody fucks with. That's a good title for her. We are on the title page here. It informs us that this issue was written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon and colors by Pamela Rambo. Les Enfants open fire. Tulip dives for cover behind a grave. Janice is still shouting about Cassidy and Dee, but then it seems like Lily shoots her in the back, though we don't see the hit. Yeah, it's just she makes a very conscious decision. This woman has nothing to do with their plan, but she likes ruining people's day, and she can tell that she's running for Xavier, who she obviously loves so she decides to mow her down yeah i wasn't exactly following the physical geography of this scene in the last issue but here as janice rounds the corner we can see that they're actually not terribly far from xavier and jesse at all they're maybe 20 feet away and pretty much inside of them tulip fires a few rounds blind from behind the headstone and then runs off that is enough to panic the lesser enfants She's firing blind, you pussies. Jesus Christ, says Mako. Get her, children. Not you, Mako. We have what we came for. With Cassidy, we own the night. Fetch him. Right. Xavier has a dying Janice in his arms, and 
Lily exposits that a day just isn't worthwhile if I can't fuck it up for someone. Jesse, meanwhile, is still in a trance. Mako finds Cassidy's head and starts kicking it around like a soccer ball. Jonathan enters the scene. And what's the story here, exactly? Not sure. No one's talking. A guy shows up and reports to Jonathan that they lost track of Tulip just before a bullet rips through his head. (laughs) Yeah. To the slight surprise of Jonathan and Lily. Meanwhile, this is exactly Mako's kind of fight. The kind where the other party can't fight back at all. Oh, one in the balls. And that's gotta hurt. He's reeling. He's on the ropes. He's down. Jonathan deduces now some incredible reasoning here. He deduces that since Tulip didn't like being called Cassidy's sow, she must have another boyfriend. That's Jesse. Yeah, that conclusion doesn't really make any sense. I feel like I'd be equally offended by that whether I was fucking Cassidy or not. Plus, there's more than one other guy here, so how do we even know? I guess Xavier is cradling Janice, which makes the unattached guy Tulip's boyfriend. That seems to be the process of elimination that they go through. So Lily takes Jesse captive with both a gun and Jonathan's sword held on him and orders Tulip to surrender. Check it out, baby. End of the line. Oh, am I enjoying this. Lose the gun and come on in or it's your fucking boyfriend, sweetheart. Xavier snaps out of his grief long enough to call out, Tulip! Tape! It's a big move and it pays off. Tulip blows away the radio. and And that snaps Jesse out of the trance. He dodges Jonathan's sword, and Tulip shoots Lily in the gut. Ugh, she says, her Uzi going flying from her hand. Jesse takes on Jonathan. You know what I'm gonna do with that pig sticker? You don't quit waving it at me? Mako charges, but Jesse knocks him to the ground with an offhand backhand, leaving Mako face-to-face with Luther, the snake. Jonathan takes a swipe at... Jesse, I love this panel of Jesse wide-eyed as the sword takes off the tip of his cigarette. Yeah, I think that maybe is my favorite panel as well. Now, we hear Jonathan say, You wouldn't! And then, the next thing we know, Lily is looking up at Jonathan. She's bleeding from her wounds. And Jonathan says, Lily, seriously, help me. Jesse has literally shoved Jonathan's pig sticker up his ass. And it's sticking out the center of his stomach. And he falls to his knees in front of Lily. Jesse takes down three more mooks with his bare hands. Tulip chimes in. Why didn't you just use the word? Shit, I clean forgot all about it. Jesse picks up Cassidy's head. Jesus, Cass, you gonna be okay? Can, can you so? Now, as this action is going on, there's a couple of panels here showing uh, Jonathan and Lily succumbing to their wounds and they swoon forward so when jesse tulip and cassidy find their bodies lily has fallen forward so that the sword impales her through the mouth and comes out the back of her head i hate this oh really i like this is this is what poetic justice because she gave blowjobs if blowjob related is the best ironic death you can come up with for a character you didn't think through the character enough oh i didn't think it had anything to do with her giving blowjobs i just thought They both fucking suck, and now they're dead on the same sword. And again, I don't mean suck to imply that giving (laughs) fellatio. They're just both awful. (laughs) Yeah, I really didn't care for Lily's complete lack of motivation to be an utterly horrible person. And then the fact that her death seems like an ironic reference to a sex act came off as somewhat oddly puritanical for Preacher. 
Fair enough. If you read it that way, it's definitely not cool. But I don't know. I just buy that she's an amoral psychopath. You know, her parents gave her too much growing up. So she doesn't give a shit about anybody but herself. And she just murdered Janice in cold blood. So, and Jonathan, you know, was a huge wanker also. So I'm glad to see them both killed. I thought it was pretty satisfying, but I didn't think about the possible sexist implications of it the way that you did. Hmm. Okay. Jesse says something here I didn't understand. He says, sure am glad I never took your bet, Cass. Did you get what he meant by that? The next thing Cassidy says is, sorry, didn't think they'd try it. Oh, you know what? It was, and I'll bet you a million dollars right now you could flatten a lot of them single-handed without using your word even once. Well, Which he actually did do. Yeah. Unless he used it that we didn't see. I don't know. No, he definitely didn't. He says he clean forgot all about it. Anyway, he says he's sorry, and Jesse says, Well, don't tell us. Tell him. Referring to Xavier, who is cradling the dead Janice. I also like the panel here of Tulip just looking down at Cassidy's head in disgust. Oh, while he's saying he didn't think they'd try it. Yeah. Uh, We see that Luther has eaten Mako. So, sometime later, Arseface is going to be a star. The guy in the cowboy hat is named Gene Sargent, and he gave Arseface a record deal. I am indeed going to sign the boy to my own personal record label. His impromptu performance in Bourbon Street last weekend convinced me he has the potential to go a long, long way. You think? Indubitably, sir. You see before you a ready-made icon for American youth. Arseface asks Cassidy if he's okay, and Cassidy says, Yeah, deadly. Let's you and me have a wee chat, huh? Yeah, Cassidy is now wearing a scarf to hold his head in place, but he's uh, still not speaking well, apparently. I think his head is sewn in place. The scarf wearing... is just to cover up the stitches. The scarf stitches. is to cover the wound, yeah. Yeah. Xavier catches up with Tulip, and he confirms that they had Janice's funeral yesterday. Tulip tries to apologize, but Xavier says they both know who to blame. You know something about him, don't you? Something bad. Bad. You know, I hate Cassidy Tulip. I'm left with no choice but to loathe him for what he's caused. But really, in my heart of hearts, and even after everything that's happened, I honestly don't believe that he's an evil man. Just careless and thoughtless and terribly, terribly weak. Yeah, that's pretty much the voice of God there. Because that is exactly right. Xavier is incredibly insightful here. Tulip asks what happened, and it's pretty simple. While Xavier was out of town, Cassidy slept with his girlfriend. The point is, we were so close I trusted him implicitly. I never imagined he would do a thing like that, that the threat of it could come from his direction. He's brilliant at being your best friend, Tulip. Men respond to that roguish free spirit of his on some basic male level. A comrade, a good mate, as he himself would say. I don't think it's calculated. I don't think he's really like that. But that's why I'm having this conversation with you and not Jesse. Every time he came to town was an occasion. I loved him so much I let him climb right inside of me until I couldn't imagine life without him. And then he let me down. You think that's how it always is with him? I think he goes through life without a sense of consequence. He didn't care that Les Enfants might be dangerous. They'd still be out to get him after whatever happened before. It didn't even occur to him. Too bad for Janice, hmm? It's just Cassidy, Tulip. Shit happens in his wake. Now we get Cassidy confronting Dee. Yeah, and she just freaks out, curls up in the fetal position as soon as she sees him. He seems genuinely surprised and hurt to find her voodoo bad vibes station. What's all this? She asks what's up with his voice, and he answers honestly. Got me head chopped off on Monday night. This is just till everything grows back together. 
I wasn't sure you'd still be here. If I'd known you were coming back, I'd have moved. I'd have run for my life. D, what's going on? Would you tell me? He asks about the voodoo and she explains. Cassidy can't imagine why she would believe in this voodoo stuff. I used to go out with a guy who drank blood and disintegrated in sunlight. You learn to keep an open mind. All the same, you were always such a smartly girl. I mean, Jesus, why would you bother with this sort of crap? She points to her eye patch. Because of this, you asshole. You fucking destroyed me, Cassidy. You taught me how powerless I was. I thought I ran my life. I was the one in charge. But no, in one fucking instant, you took that away from me. Because the strongest always wins. And there's always some fucking savage like you to prove it. And that's why I try anything to make you pay for what you did. Cassidy tells her that Janice is dead. I'm not surprised. Get out. Elsewhere, Tulip and Jesse. Jesse's feeling guilty about Janice. I barely even knew her, but she got too close to this crazy road I'm on and it just reached out and killed her. He says it's time to finish this before any more innocent blood is spilled. He also mentions that Cassidy isn't coming. He convinced Arseface to tell Sergeant that he's his uncle. Right, Cassidy is boarding the Arseface train, trying to get a cut for himself. Jesse says he's glad Arseface will have Cassidy to look out for him. He doesn't trust Gene Sargent. But Tulip was just about to tell Jesse all about Cassidy and what's been happening between her and him. But upon the news that he won't be coming along anymore, she decides to drop it. Later. Arseface shakes Jesse's hand, thanking him for the new start. Jesse and Cassidy part. So I'll see you when I see you then, I. Not if I see you first, shithead. They have a manly embrace. And, yeah, Cassidy watches them go with a sort of pensive look on his face. As they drive off, Jesse and Tulip talk about their next step, following the angel's advice out west, looking for a way to access Genesis directly. Tulip asks Jesse if he's upset that Cassidy isn't going to keep his word, but Jesse can't really find it in himself to blame Cass after he just got his head chopped off. And suddenly Cassidy is clinging to the window. Fam and fortune be fucked, have you room for a bastard? And as we hear Jesse reply, Get in here, asshole. We see the look on Tulip's face is one of... Well, what would you call that? Anguish? Yeah, there you go. Lovely panel work here. The pace and delivery of this scene is awesome. Meanwhile, Xavier is back out in the same graveyard. He seems to be at the same the same spot where they did the voodoo ritual. Over and over again, we hear, click, click. Fuck you, you son of a bitch. Fuck you, you son of a bitch. Over and over, Xavier is pulling the trigger on an empty chamber, aiming at a headstone where he's pinned a photo of Cassidy. I hope you fucking die. Well, yeah. Cassidy was... Not a very good guy in that story arc. No, he keeps making plays for Tulip. He was totally irresponsible with regards to the Enfants. Yeah, and we've seen a bit more of whatever he did to D. Not good. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, he just left a, a trail of ruined people behind him since the last time he was in New Orleans. Yeah, nonetheless, I do think that the blame is coming down on him pretty hard for Janice's death, which is not entirely fair. Well, yeah, that's something that occurred to me a while after I read this, too. That by the time of the cemetery, everybody had been warned about Les Enfants. Yeah, and also, like, Janice was killed intentionally 
to cause Xavier pain by a psychopath. Mm-hmm. You know, it, <laughs> it was one person's decision that she should die. So you think that intervening criminal decision clarifies Cassie's responsibility? I just think that, like, there's a more directly responsible party. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Well, yeah, I think Xavier kind of puts the finger right on it. It's not that Cassidy is evil, it's that trouble follows him. Yeah, I guess. But I I don't know, I don't know. I think Lily is kind of inexplicable. Well, I kind of complained about that issue myself. I don't mean inexplicable in the storytelling terms that I don't believe her, that I don't believe she could exist. I'm saying she's, you know, she's totally evil. Yeah. Like... Cassidy was right to not predict that they'd be as much trouble as they were. Because Lily is pure fucking evil walking around in a human suit. (laughs) I see. Like, no one would know. Right, so he remembers the enfants as wankers because that's what they are, and... Yeah. And you can't necessarily predict at all that they're led by somebody genuinely unpredictable and dangerous. Right. I see, I see. So... This arc takes us somewhat out of the way as we were intending to get to out west, which is now where the story is headed. We have found out a key piece of information, though, one of the best big reveals of the series, as we learn the uh, secret behind the origin of the saint. Yeah, that's right. And this is this is setting us up for some really exciting stuff to come. You know, to this point, we've mostly understood God. I mean, God has been portrayed as something of a dickhead. <laughs> yes. He intervened both with Cassidy and with Tulip, basically putting them in a lot of trouble to give them the opportunity that he could help out and then send them with a warning to Jesse to back off. Not cool behavior under either circumstance. And in addition, there's sort of like all the misery of the world that can be laid at his feet. Yeah. Much of which is kind of off screen. Sure. This is sort of where we see God for the first time as like, really megalomaniacal yeah he um he's definitely taken a level as a villain here when we know that he created that he created the saint and all the misery that was involved in that story yeah he has maybe been portrayed as a little bit hapless before Mm -hmm. you know his plan with tulip for instance is so sloppy that the characters themselves can scarcely believe it right but yeah this is a this is for the first time i think a setup that really makes us want to see god defeated as an antagonist in this comic right yeah he just he put everything in motion sacrificed the saint of killers family and the town of ratwater yeah i think this is one of the page turnier story arcs of preacher yeah i think that's true it's a uh, mighty pacey even when it uh, stops to chat about the tulip cassidy relationship which is in- increasingly becoming a problem for the characters yeah, it's interesting that our heroes set up shop in a cemetery to do this ritual, and the bad guys are kind of preparing to attack them, and that's the end of issue 31, uh-huh. and then they don't attack for all of issue 32, <laughs> and they actually attack at the beginning of issue 33, and yet it doesn't feel too slow or drawn out. I mean, right, yeah. I imagine issue 32 would be maybe a little bit difficult to read in isolation. Yeah, we had the advantage of reading in the trade. So if if you got issue 32 in the mail and it was all you had for a month, you might have been a little disappointed. 
Yeah, but Cassidy gets his head chopped off at the end of it, so you, <laughs> I don't know. You might feel like you got pretty exciting. Installment. Yeah, that's fair. And the, the voodoo ritual and the midnight in a cemetery setting gives us lovely southern gothic atmosphere. It's almost like there's a uh, a list of southern fiction tropes you have to check off as the series goes on. <laughs> right. Also, the voodoo sequence, Jesse in a theater watching a movie of the history of heaven. That was just yeah, uh, an amazing synthesis of words and art. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, join us in our next Preacher episode, where we are going to go to a very scary place, inside the mind of Hairstar. But first, join us next time for Sandman, with our special guest Joanna from What's Lightsaber's Precious, as we wrap up A Game of You. Vertigais is written and hosted by me and Sean. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. Sean produces the show, and I handle social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertigais.blueberry.com. We've got lots more episodes, plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email. Our email address is vertigais at gmail.com. It's not gmail.gmail.com? It really isn't. We're available on Twitter at Vertigais. And you can reach me on Twitter at BlankCastSean. If you listen to our show on the Apple Podcasts app or on iTunes, go ahead and click that five stars and leave us a nice positive review. Really helps get the word out about the show. But as always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks, everybody. I think that's the one, that's definitely the one that shows off his vocal ability the best. Mm. At least on the first record. Or I guess that's not the first record. I don't think Golden Hum is the first record. I think Bill Elaine is earlier. Oh, okay. Well, on that record, I think that's probably the one that shows off his vocals the best. Bill's got a secret track. Yeah, I love that secret track. Is it Impossibility or is that the... Impossibility is the song, the listed track that the secret track is on. Okay. Is the... Secret track? The title track for the album? No, that's an instrumental. Oh, okay. The secret track is called Sub Balloon, I think. Sub Balloon? Sub Balloon, yeah. Okay. I think Mario went there. I think he defeated the King of Dark Dreams there or something, yeah. That was a joke. It was a good one. It was funny. I. You didn't seem to think so. Fuck you, little guy! <laughs>